Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. I'm on, Sven. Tom, good morning. How are you, Tom? I'm fine, Ronnie. Thank you. I'm, and you? I am excited that next Monday is a public holiday. And it is long overdue that we recognize St. Bridget and the first of spring. And I think it was an inspired movement by the government that they should, you know, suddenly come forward with this great idea. Um, yeah. You know, it's just such a lovely thing. Lots of countries celebrate, lots of Northern Hemisphere countries celebrate spring, Sweden and Finland, you know, and it's it's just in such evidence now, you know, in the gardens we talked about last week and in the, the mild weather we're having, that spring really is approaching and how yeah. right we are to celebrate it. That's all. That's all. Indeed, yeah, 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 indeed, yeah. Uh, lovely. I'm yeah. not going to spend the day, I don't think, gardening, but I'll certainly spend the day enjoying the outdoor uh, and the feeling yeah. of spring, you know. I know, no, it's wonderful. I agree. Yeah. Poor St. Bridget, she 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 probably got a bad press. You know, she she you know, the men seem to preoccupy them, the great men saints of Ireland, Patrick and Cullum Kill. And St. Bridget was there all right, but she was kind of in the background. Now she's in the foreground where she belongs. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Good. So Tom, our, um, on that note, on that note, what are you writing about this week? What are you telling us? Well, I have two photographs of Our Lady's Boys Club. Good man. It is one of the oldest and finest institutions we have in this city. It was founded in 1940 by a Jesuit priest, Father Leonard Shield. Now, and, at the time... And the Tom, if you, if you let me... And I think your dad was involved in the founding of that group. He No, he was not in the founding. He came in about a year later. <clears throat> but he was there for the rest of his life after <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it was very important to him. Anyway, that like at the time, there was no after-school entertainment or uh, any kind of activity for uh, school children, and especially for uh, children from the working class. And in the case of Galway, that would be the areas like Bohermore, Chantella, the Clada, or the West. And he set up this uh, <clears throat> club. Now, it was a time of great poverty, as you can imagine. It was during the war. There were no prospects. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, <clears throat> general poverty. And certainly in those four areas, there was poverty. So this was uh, a major advance, really, for the youth of Galway, where they were able to congregate a couple of times a week. Uh, most of the activities were done through sports. But behind it all, there was a very serious intent they wanted to train these boys to be self-confident, to be themselves, to grow up, to do well in life, to beat yeah. the poverty trap. 
Exactly. All of these things. It sounds kind of ridiculous today, but in fact, it was hugely significant then. And they did it mostly through sport. Uh, They played all kinds of games. Uh, They had club nights a couple of nights a week uh, where they played games like table tennis and snooker and rings and various indoor games. Uh, And at the end of the night, then they would have... They would say some prayers, but there was, they would get a cup of tea and a big, thick slice of bread with jam. Now, this doesn't sound like much, but in those days, this was a serious help to their diet, in fact. Uh, and I mean, serious. Anyway, <clears throat> mostly through sports. So they played games like soccer was the big game. Uh, they boxing. They had boxing in the early days, Irish dancing. Uh, eventually, they started to play rugby and got involved in other sports like swimming, water, safety, and so on. And they still continue to do that with enormous success. But it's the training of the boys to have self-respect, to have respect for their parents, for example, to help their mothers at home in the kitchen. Simple things like this uh, that prepare them for adult life, really. So I have two photographs. This week, both are taken in the 50s. One is of a rugby team. It's an historic rugby team in club terms because it's the first one to win a trophy in 1959. And the other is of a group of helpers. Uh, These would have been senior boys who went on camp. The, The highlight of the club year always was an annual camp where they took 80 or 90 kids on a week's holiday. Uh, this was a very healthy kind of week, a lot of competition, games, all kinds of things. But, you know, you won pri- they, they were divided into teams and uh, your team won prizes for, for t- fatigues, for example, which was washing the dishes or drying the dishes or sweeping the place. You got points for how tidy your room was, your dormitory, etc. Anyway. It was all a very kind of uh, making men out of boy, really, I suppose. <clears throat> and in the two photographs that I have, there is uh, Williamine McDonough. He was obviously William McDonough. Yeah. But he was known only as Williamine. <clears throat> well, I like that. Yeah. Uh, he was from Cook's Terrace. He was one of a family of 10, all of whom emigrated, uh, sadly to say. <clears throat> including Williamy. Now, he, he was a great sportsman. Uh, he excelled at rugby. He was a very good boxer. He was a very good table tennis player. Uh, but he was also a great club man. He was uh, very active on through his club life. Uh, and as he got older, then he became a serious helper and supporter of the club. In Galway, he drifted from job to job and... Uh, Eventually, he went to London. He came back once or twice in the early days, but gradually he lost touch with Galway and with his old friends and mates. And then some years ago, Tom Nelly, who is a barber at the top of High Street, got a call from his cousin, Bobby Burke. Bobby Burke would be well known as the man who owned... uh, a horse called Bobby Joe. It won the Grand National, I don't know how many years ago. Anyway, 
Bob Ebert had he had met a man in London called Mikhail, who used to visit his mother in an old folks' home. And he became friendly with a man called William McDonough in the home. And he wasn't getting a huge amount out of him, but all he knew was that he was from Galway. But they became friends anyway. And so Bobby Burke asked Tom Nelly, by any chance, do you know who this man was or is? And he didn't, but he then called uh, Tom Connell, who's a boys club fellow. And Tom said, oh, yeah, I knew him. I knew him, as did I, by the way. I knew William personally myself. Anyway, <clears throat> Tom Connell and Jerry Trainer sent Williamine McDonough a boys club rugby jersey and several old photographs uh, of the boys club. <clears throat> and this created a problem for the staff in the old folks' home because they had great difficulty in getting the jersey off Williamine just to wash it every now and then. He just wore it all the time. And from then on, all he talked about was the best days of his life. Yeah, going up in Galway, our yeah, ladies' yeah. boys club and his friends, etc. Yeah. And <clears throat> he expressed a wish uh, to this man, Mikhail, the visitor to the home, uh, that he'd be buried in Galway. So he died during COVID. Uh, he was cremated, but P.J. McHale happily uh, preserved his ashes. And now, next week, on the 8th of this month, uh, next month, sorry, the Boys Club are bringing Williamine home. <laughs> he is going to be, there'll be a mass in his honor in, in Our Ladies Boys Club uh, at 2 o'clock on that day. And then afterwards, he will be buried in the new cemetery, which is literally a stone's throw away from where he grew up. So it's just it's just a lovely boys club story, really. Isn't it? You know, bringing him home after yeah. all of these years. That's lovely. His dying yeah. wish yeah. being, you know, taken yeah. care of. And it's yeah. very important to the club as well. And I, I'm very impressed with them. And it, I'm not surprised that they would be yeah. doing this. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's such an outstanding institution, yeah. and there's this wonderful sense of loyalty among the boys and indeed all the senior helpers. Yeah. The club is completely run now by men who have come up through the ranks, who started maybe when they were 12, 11, 12 kind of thing, and come up through the ranks in the boys' club. So, yeah, it's one of the great Galway institutions, and this is one of the nice yeah. stories about. How many how many people attend the meetings now, Tom? I don't know that, Ronnie. I am, yeah. I am still a very much a supporter, uh, but it's just as valid as it ever was, yes. and as necessary. The yeah. problems yeah. are different now. Obviously, uh, there wouldn't be that abject poverty that was there in 1940, but there mm. are other problems. Yeah, uh, and they still, you know. If somebody gets into trouble, they will be visited in jail, that kind of thing. I know anytime my father went to the UK, he was doing business, but he was also visiting jails as well. Yeah. And, uh, and they do that still and, uh, and help, you know, their mates who may be in financial trouble or whatever other kind of trouble. Yes, yes. The problems of today would be drugs, although it has always remained a drug-free place. Um, uh, the club, but uh, you know there are different problems around today. 
to what they were And it's funny you should have mentioned, you know, the the importance of food as well, which was probably more important in the olden days than now. But funnily enough, strangely enough, Tom, a lot of schools, particularly in rural Ireland, are introducing uh, lunch and meals at school. Um, But the simple reason is that I think that you and I were probably brought up to have three meals a day or Two meals a day, certainly. I think we had three. Poor old mum stayed at home and uh, she cooked meals and she looked after yes. us that way wonderfully. Um, but nowadays, very often, Tom, that doesn't happen. It's different now. Mums and dads yes. are probably working. Children yes. are not getting three meals a day. And uh, the schools are, have taken on this excellent excellent, um, should I say, benefit to children attending schools by providing meals. And of course, if children are well fed, they learn better at school, I'm sure. If they're hungry, they won't learn a thing, you know. So it it, it makes total sense. And also, it might relieve the parents from having to get a a big dinner in, in the evening if the children have eaten at school. I think it's an outstanding idea. I've seen it England, certainly the school meals are very, very important and um, everybody lashes into them and the food is good. When I was a teacher, the food was great. I always got second helpings. But, um, you know, it's very, very important. So I I really appreciate the value of giving young people food when they come together. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was, of course, unusual in 1940. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Then there was real poverty, real poverty. In yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And when you so think... That's, 19, yes, that's my story this week. Yeah, no, it's a good story. But when you think the 1940s, not so far gone from the, the, the troubles, the civil war, Ireland struggling to get to its feet, to get its exports together, to try and get business flowing again after the war of independence and the civil war. You know, I mean tremendous tasks for a government to try and do and it's to their great credit that they did it they they really did it and that ireland became a successful republic quite early on certainly there was terrible emigration that that's a a slight on any government that there should be huge emigration but still with that um you know the country got to its feet from its knees, it got to its feet. And today we live in a, in a surprisingly prosperous country. Although you mightn't think it all the time, but it is nevertheless a very it is. prosperous, ah, yeah, it is. very successful. And, um, you know, we're, we're lucky to live here, Tom. We're lucky to live here. Absolutely. But, Tom, I'm just going to continue uh, concentrating on Clifton and the Civil War. Yeah. Um, now, I... I Last week, I was talking about how the National Army ousted the anti-treaty forces from Limerick in August 1922. Uh, But the anti-treaty forces, Tom, to quote a more modern phrase, they had not gone away. They still remained a threatening force. They were well-armed and determined. 
And ever since the Black and Tan War, which you and I have discussed and, and written on on several occasions, the so-called Connemara Flying Column, still under the leadership of Peter MacDonald, Gerald Bartley and others, they were firmly on the anti-treaty side. And they were familiar with the pathways and the mountain hideouts, and they became virtually invisible once they retreated into the mountains. So uh, they they carried on, Tom, an effective hit and run campaign against the pro-treaty army and others whom they believed were supporters of the treaty. And don't forget, we must never forget that in the general election of June 1922, it was seen as a referendum on the terms of the treaty. And the yes. pro-treaty candidates were elected by more than 70 percent of the people. So there's quite clearly a division there that the vast majority of people in Ireland in the in the 32 counties were in favour of the treaty and did not want the civil war. Yet it continued. And I do go into some detail about the ambush at Bell and the Boy, but I'm not going to talk about that today because there was another aspect of this sad history of ours, Tom, that I needs to be said. And it's almost an embarrassment to say so. But um, in the belief anyway that the National Army were, were looking for large houses to barrack its men, the anti-treaty forces, Tom, continued its policy of burning big houses down. I know. Yeah. On October the 13th, the Recess Hotel, which was the property of the Midland Great Western Railway Company, that was burnt to the ground. Now, the hotel was a huge success, a great draw for English anglers to come and stay and spend their money. And it was a popular venue with visitors. And nearby, Glendalough House was also burnt down. That was also a popular place for visitors to stay. So, you know, the, 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 the commerce of the Clifton area were being severely undermined. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. there may have been some anti-treaty logic in the burning of these targets, Tom. The, but... There was no justification whatsoever for burning the Protestant boys' orphanage at Ballyconree. The children fled to safety with their matron, Miss Emily White. They were taken to England and then on to Australia. And Winston Churchill, who was the colonial secretary's, under his orders, the children were dramatically picked up by a British warship in Clifton Bay and they never returned to Ireland. Now, this is a story that has to be told. It has been told already, but I'm telling it again with all the information that I can draw on. The fact, Tom, that there was a separate Protestant orphanage in Clifton was a leftover from the so-called proselytizing by the Society of the Irish Church Missions set up in the inner city of Dublin and in the more desolate areas of the country, most noticeably Connemara. The Anglican missionaries, Tom, came during the Great Famine with, when hundreds of children, they were abandoned and left to wander and to beggar for food and shelter in the wilds of Connemara because their parents had died. For many years now, the Catholic Church was slow to recognize the extent of the problem. It had mainly concentrated its buildings and schools on the east of the large Galway Tomb Diocese. It had few schools and practically no services along Kosherega and Connemara, despite its large population. So this was fertile ground for the Society of the Irish Church Missions, which offered food, shelter, hope and education to children and their families. Now, the recipients 
were encouraged, of course, to become Anglicans. No one can, could, could blame a family, Tom, confronted by the stark choice of starvation for, ch for changing their religion. Oh, no, could not. Yes, when the Catholic Church realized that it was losing its flock, it reacted robustly and crudely. There were stories of priests physically attacking Anglican ministers, stoning them and their families for forcibly taking and forcibly taking children out of Protestant schools and, and preaching against those who sought their help in spiteful terms. This is where the term supers became an emotive and, and socially wounding slur on families or individuals who changed their religion for food and security. Now, Tom, this was an unfortunate and at times shameful episode in our story, and it still causes embarrassment today. But it, it did happen. We have to acknowledge it. It was a leftover from the terrible Great Famine times and it came to this extraordinary climax when the boys' orphanage was burnt to the ground. Now, quite the purpose of burning it to the ground, I have no idea. But, you know, what, what satisfaction was there in that other than yeah. frightening the boys and they fled? Now, it I've got a good... Yeah. I got a good go on. It was just vindictive. I don't know what it was. Yeah, some form of kind of perceived revenge. You know, I don't know either. I mean, it was a kind of a right-wing people blinded by whatever, <clears throat> whatever yeah. they were told. You know, or misinformation. I know what they believe, misinformation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a quote here from. Uh, <clears throat> The House of Commons official record, the Hansard of July 4th, 1922, during which question time, Winston Churchill, he was the colonial secretary, a man, you know, who watched Irish affairs very closely. He was involved in the in the treaty, the Anglo-Irish treaty of the previous year. Winston Churchill was the colonial secretary. He was asked about the Clifton orphanage. Here's what we, Churchill said. Mr. Churchill, information was received late on the evening of June 30th that one of two orphanages in Clifton County, Galway, had been destroyed by fire and that the inmates had taken refuge in the other orphanage. A destroyer was ordered to proceed from Queenstown to Clifton with instructions to investigate the facts on the spot and to remove such of the staff and inmates of the orphanages that might appear to be in serious peril. And Churchill goes on to read radio messages. We don't have to worry about that. He, but he carries on then. Private messages received from Hobo Line this morning state that the, 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 the destroyer eventually removed all the inmates, 32 boys and all, from the burnt orphanage and that the party arrived safely back at Hobo Line. The senior naval officer on that station previously instructed to arrange for a reception of the party and for their subsequent transit to this country, meaning the UK. Active arrangements are in train for their accommodation and maintenance on arrival. Now, Mr. O'Neill MP asked the question, do we understand aright that the reason assigned for this outrage was as a reprisal for the loyalty of the inmates does that mean anything except that the children of this orphanage were Protestants? What does it mean? Churchill answers, of course, 
The extreme Republican element in Ireland are in a state of frenzy at present, and we must expect a certain number of frenzied acts to be committed by them until the process of their repression by the national forces of the Irish Free State is complete. Well, we know more about what happened to these boys. In fact, they were taken to Australia. And, you know, I'm very grateful to the Clifton and Connemara Heritage Society for this note, that in November 22, 22 of the Ballyconry boys, aged 7 to 17, they boarded a steamship at London, and with them was their matron, Emily White, who was their original carer in Ireland, Tom. She stayed with them since the night of the big fire. There were third-class passengers, along with another 200 young men been brought out by various schemes for training as farmers in Australia. The Irish boys and their matron disembarked in Sydney on February, uh, on the, sorry, the 22nd of December, 1922. They were officially welcomed at the town hall and arrived at Burnside Presbyterian Homes for Children in the afternoon. Now, just glancing at their life, there's a lot written about them, but they certainly lived a healthy life, Tom, and they had good exercise, were well-educated and vocationally trained and placed in employment. As most children do, it appears, they adapted to change, helped no doubt by the close-knit Irish group that they were. They were kind of a substitute family for themselves, a bit like our ladies' boys club you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And of course, believe it or not, uh, <coughs> matron Emily White was with them all the time and remained there as the boys grew up and grew old and passed away. Now, there is little doubt that the Irish boys ended up much materially better off in Australia, Tom, than they would have if they stayed yeah. living in Ireland. But it still has to be said, the significant pain of enforced removal from their personal, social and cultural roots in Connemara had to be wretched and had right. to hurt them and marked them for their whole lives. Of but <clears throat> another little anecdote that you come across, that in 2009, you'll probably remember this, Prime Minister Kevin Rood, uh, formerly Prime Minister Kevin Rood of Australia, formally apologised to all former child migrants on behalf of the Australian nation. Principally, he said, for the absolute tragedy of childhoods lost. And the following year, Prime Minister Gordon Brown followed suit on behalf of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Well, it's just an anecdote that reflects badly on society as a whole. Yeah. And I know it was difficult times, the result of the Great Famine. You know, parents at their ends, at their wits' end to, to help their children survive. Of yeah. course, they would have done anything. They would have done anything to have their children taken into care, educated and fed. And I certainly don't blame them. You know, to then and to gang up Catholic priests, these awful, awful priests at the time, you know, to gang up people, to call them supers, to insult them. <clears throat> that, that super, you know, slur carried on all their lives, Tom. I believe, oh, yeah. I believe they never shook it off. You know, yeah. People would, would say, oh, there goes so-and-so. Of course, they were supers, you know. And I mean, why not? 
how proud they should be to be a super. At least they did something very positive for their family. But it was a terrible time. You can't use today's judgment uh, on, on what happened at the time. But, yeah. you know, but the awful consequences of burning the boys' orphanage in Clifton was really a terrible thing. And I, Indeed, I, I it was. It, yeah. yeah. But well, you know, maybe there's hope here as our Ladies Boys Club bringing home a long lost <clears throat> friend to bury him as he wished, as his dying wish. And uh, I think that's an act of enormous Christian charity and completely the reverse of the story you have just told us. Yeah. So hopefully it's a, it'll start to trend. Well, Tom, you're absolutely right, because no, you yeah. cannot, you know, expel from your body and psychic the where you grew up, where your birth rights yes. were, your initial, you know, early life in 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 a country you, that never disappears. That's always there. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, yeah, there, was, there was a policy in Australia to bring young men out there, you know, because they badly needed to to populate the country. They had huge areas where there was hardly any population. They were bringing men out and they were bringing girls out from the orphanages in Ireland as well. But um, I haven't any, I didn't come across any record of any of those boys wanting to be buried back in Ireland. I think they were no, totally no. assimilated into Australia. I and, know, it's a long way. Yeah. 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 But still yeah. what you say is very relevant. And it's interesting that our two stories complement each other in a sense this week, which is very yeah. nice. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. yeah. I'm glad of that. Tom, I'm going to leave it, but I'm not leaving Clifton yet because Clifton, goes back into full-scale warfare. And next week, I'm actually going to talk about the retaking of Clifton by the anti-treaty forces in an extraordinary turnaround in the war there. So yeah. I, I'll wait till next week, Tom, before I tell you. Okay, well, we look forward to that. Ronnie. All right, Tom, you're great. Yeah. Take care, okay. Tom. Yeah, God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Slow. Slow.